So we're just going live on Facebook right now as we wait for um, some attendees to join on Zoom. All right, and we are live on Facebook. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, welcome to this month's Tamil Innovator Spotlight. So the Tamil Innovator Spotlight is an online series that puts the spotlight on individuals from the global Tamil community who are building great products, services, and initiatives. Our latest event is brought to you in partnership with mystartupdojo.com and tamilculture.com. And by the way, just as a bit of a teaser, if you like free things, you're definitely going to want to stick around until the end because we have some pretty cool surprises. Um, before we get into things, my name is Angelina Narendran. I'm excited to be your host today. I'm the program director of mystartupdojo.com, host of the Young at Heart Show and two-time world robotics champion. Um, so really excited to get into this. Now, without further ado, I'm so excited to welcome our featured speaker, for this event. Karan Shan Mukharaja, the CEO of Wealth Kernel. So before I jump into your incredible bio, um, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I, I do need to ask you what a two-time robotics world champion is. <laughs> yeah. I will ask you that by the end of this conversation. Okay, we'll definitely touch on that. So um, just to introduce Karan and his, uh, his, his incredible background, he is the co-founder and CEO of Wealth Kernel, an API platform that provides infrastructure to savings and investment companies. Um, Wealth Kernel raised a $6 million Series A last year, and Karan is the also the portfolio manager at Barclays in London, overseeing over $500 million in client assets. Previously, he was a member in the North American Equity Committee and a voting member of the Selection Committee responsible for multi-asset reference portfolio across the UK and Europe. All around, very, very interesting background in the finance space and now spearheading a very, very cool company, um, again, in this space. So thank you so much for joining us today. A pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. So before we get into it, why don't you tell us a little bit about Wealth Kernel and how it all began. Um, yeah, so, um, so to be clear, I'm not at Barclays anymore. I was at Barclays. Um, I've left Barclays to about now five years ago to start Wealth Kernel. Um, um, so where Wealth Kernel came from, so I looked at, so my background is managing investments. That's what I did at, at Barclays as a portfolio manager. 
and while I was there, I, I, you know, there was trends in our sector about the space digitizing and the need for infrastructure to sort of catch up in the space. So I appreciate most of your audience, you know, isn't really in the like, like we call it the plumbing. It's kind of boring, but we kind of refer to it like as the plumbing for our sector. It's how like, if you think about it, like how if you ever use a discount brokerage or if you ever bought, if you have like a, T a TSFA in Canada, <laughs> TSFA, yeah, TSFA, um, and you purchase something in that portfolio, how does it get from your account to the stock exchange? The routing of your funds, um, the shares back to you, that's what we call the plumbing. And that's what our company kind of does. And that when I was at Barclays, Barclays being a, a very large British bank that's been around forever, I recognized that the infrastructure we had there wasn't really suited for the next generation of digital companies. And you'll see some of these companies in the media, not, not our clients, but kind of a, a precursor for like the trend that's happening, like with Robinhood and people investing in shares on your phone. All that's kind of made possible with kind of behind the scenes companies, kind of like us, um, enabling those type of businesses to do that. So that's, that's kind of where the company got started from. So can you take me through kind of this story from um, when you began the company to where you are now? So first of all, when did you realize that there was potentially a problem that you could solve through Wealth Kernel? What was that like? And then how that how did that become Wealth Kernel? Um, yeah, like for me, the idea came again because I worked in the sector. So you know, I would I'd literally be sitting on a desk in this big office building in, in, in Canary Wharf here in London. and and you recognize how manual it is, right? Like if something went wrong on a trade, I'd pick up the phone and maybe on the other side, someone picked up the phone in Glasgow, which is a city in Scotland where the back office is. Um, although it's technically the same country, but not really. <laughs> it's a bit complicated, the UK, English and Scotland thing. And there's a lot of, someone told me that for every trade or for every PM like me, there's about 30 people supporting me indirectly or directly. And that's a lot of people, that's a lot of people doing stuff. And, and obviously because of that, um, and there's sort of low usage of automation, you can kind of see where the opportunities lie. Technology allowed for that sort of automation, but also like, it's not just like, okay, we can do it faster and cheaper, but you can deliver a different le level of service. You know, now more and more people are interested in shares and investing and investing in the stock market. And the minimums have kind of come down, it's become much more approachable and the fees have come down. That's partly because of this sort of automation. You know, I was managing money for, mostly really, really rich people, like multimillionaires, et cetera. Um, and if you want to bring that level of service down to someone that's say $100 or hundred pounds, the infrastructure cannot be the same. You can't have 30 people shuffling paper in, a, in another, another city. That just wouldn't work. So uh, did you have some sort of a technical background? How were you able to actually begin to address the problem? No, I have, like, I'm not technical, my background's finance, um, but I did cover tech stocks. Like, so I started my career in sell-side equity research, but covering like nothing remotely as glamorous as tech, uh, paper and forestry and fertilizer companies uh, out of Montreal, where that's, that's like the sector you get there. Like I was just an intern there for a few months, um, did that for like nine months before coming to the UK. But when I came to Barclays, I covered a lot of tech and financials and so the trends are there and, and sort of, I knew enough about tech that this year was, and I went kind of back to school. Um, I want to say school. Like I went to like a, uh, like a continuous education course uh, to kind of get my head back into tech and learn the basics of it. And then I obviously recruited people who knew a hell of a lot more about tech than I did. 
Um, so I met my co-founder at Barclays, uh, Joe Campbell, uh, and another friend of mine uh, from Montreal who had been living here in the UK, uh, Yannick Bruner. And I kind of reached out to him to, you know, have this idea. Those guys subsequently quit their jobs and followed me in. Um, Till this day, I'm probably one of the least knowledgeable people of the tech that we deal with relative to the people that work in the company. So, yeah, <laughs> so to answer your question, I don't know that much about tech. I just got smarter people than me to work with me. All right, and just to kind of get um, a better understanding of how the business progressed over time, if you had to pinpoint maybe three milestones um, that really kind of shaped Wealth Simple, what would they be? Um, milestones. Um, getting the business off the ground in itself was quite difficult. It, like, without going into too many details, it has to do with, like visas and all that. Being a Canadian out in the UK, um, getting the company started was actually in itself a huge feat. We needed to get investment from this venture capital company, Seacamp, which then allowed me to resign from Barclays to get an entrepreneur visa to get started. And I actually seriously considered going back to Canada to, uh, and, and maybe starting this company in Waterloo or, or Toronto. Uh, but luckily, this VC took a chance on us, uh, Seed Camp, who's you know, now become one of the most successful VCs in, in Western Europe. You know, they have, I think, six unicorns in their portfolio um, by far. You know. And once they did that, that in itself, just getting that investment that allowed me to resign from Barclays and start was a huge milestone. <laughs> I just remember how frustrating that process was. I've been plotting, you know, how, how can I do this for a year? And, and I finally got there. Um, also, number two, I would say is um, when we first I'd say when we first raised capital, because that, you know, that, that, not, sorry, not capital. So when we first got paid by a customer, that was definitely a milestone day when we first got revenue, because then that's like, you have an arm's length objective firm paying you for something you built and you haven't like hustled your way to get this revenue. That, that was a really momentous day, you know, to affirm another financial service company paying you. That, that was huge. Um, what other things, I point to two or three things actually. When we became a custodian in the UK, so custodian is like someone that's responsible for the management of the assets of for, for third parties or individuals. Getting that license in the UK and actually doing that function was a huge milestone. And then lastly, recently closing our Series A, because uh, even to those days, I still struggle to kind of get that through my head a little bit, like the, the sums of money that we're dealing with. But getting that sort of vote of confidence from our investors and just just letting that deal close huge milestone for us in our business. Just when people vote with uh, vote with, with, their, with their money and show you that level of confidence is huge. So I know it's been a year now, but I still kind of, you know, you know, I pinch myself kind of thinking about that now. Yeah, and, and one thing that I'd like to zoom in on is you, you previously mentioned this, but um, you're a Canadian, but you managed to start and grow a company in a completely different country. So can you tell me a bit about um, what making that decision was like, number one, and, and then the experience of building a business in the UK. Yeah, like to be clear, I'm Tamil Canadian, right? So born in, like, I'm born in Sri Lanka, Tamil first, then migrated to Canada, Canadian second. And I think that's partly in our blood a little bit in that you kind of just get used to going to new places and, you know, setting up shop and getting to work, I guess. Uh, and I think that immigrant mentality goes anywhere. Uh, no, I, it, it's not like compared to like, like the journey that our parents went through most, I'm guessing the most of the listeners here, they can relate to that. Like when you come to England, it's just like, they speak the same language, slightly different currency. The weather's a little bit different, but it's not that different. Like you can kind of continue on and it, it's, 
uh, like I said, I got quite lucky as well getting into Barclays, being a, a global bank here, built a network. And then there's a huge Tamil community here as well. Like, you know, there's there's networks. I, I know like there's a Canadian Tamil professional association in, in Toronto. There's a similar one like here in London. Um, yeah, like it's, it also, it's, it's kind of going back to luck. Like the tech boom is happening here. London's a FinTech capital world. I work in finance. Um, and it's just things things aligned. Um, and the Tamil network here is, is pretty good as well. Like and people are really nice and uh, they're, they're helpful. Like I don't have, like I have a second cousin out here. Not that she's in tech or finance, but you know, you just kind of find a few like strands you have and, and you kind of build on it. Yeah, so um, I think what would be really interesting to do is to talk about maybe um, some challenges you faced. We've talked a little bit about the milestones, the wins you've had from, you know, uh, raising that Series A to, um, you know, even getting started. So can you maybe pinpoint a particular challenge that you have faced over the years um, and how you overcame it? Oh, gee. Um... Should probably prepare for this question better. There's so many, uh, so so many. Um, I'm trying to think here. I'm trying to. I'm filtering like ones that are probably most relevant for your listeners. I guess. Um, I'd say funding is not funding, but like. There's this thing about raising capital and fund founders and what you're, how you're perceived to be, right? Like maybe I'm going to tangent here, but one of the things that like, I'm not the most like, how should I say it? Um, like I, I'm pretty much like, not flat for a negative way to say it, but I'm even keeled is probably a much better way to say it. I don't ever get too hyped. I don't go into a pitch meeting saying like, I'm going to disrupt this and, I don't kind of go in there with that sort of cockiness, that, that sort of MO you would expect from a founder. Um, and that early on, I kind of thought that was a bit of a problem because there's sort of expectations of founders of companies when you raise capital. Um, and I kind of overcame that partly by just, just kind of being true to myself a little bit about that. I have my strengths, I have my weaknesses and kind of turning some of those weaknesses into strengths as well. Um, because I'd be very conservative in these pitches because I come from banking, you're kind of, discipline not to overestimate too many things and you're accountable and you're and there's a you know you make a whole career of like keeping the bar low and, and over uh, you know exceeding people's expectations in VC land not the case <laughs> you don't necessarily go into a meeting and get rewarded for being conservative in fact sometimes they might mistake that for not believing in your idea or whatever uh, but over time people kind of recognize that that's just kind of who I am and it's become a hallmark of me I'm very just kind of soft-spoken and just slightly conservative in VCs and the community kind of recognize that. And then now it's just like, well, they kind of just see me as someone's very straight talking and straight shooting about stuff. And that's bought a lot of credibility with me and other investors because early years, it kind of sucked. I think I always get the benefit of doubts, but as you kept hitting, hitting your expectations, I'm like, oh, fine. The guy kind of does what he says and he kind of stays with it. And he kind of grinds his way, like grit and grind his way through stuff. Like it's kind of, kind of consistent, like, and that's kind of now become a strength, but early on it was definitely a bit of a like, maybe I should adopt some more, you know, trying to change up how I speak or present myself slightly different. Um, and this is not like, you know, a race thing or anything. It's just, there's certain 
it's people who do better when you go in front of an audience and you can project confidence. I'd always been confident. It's just, I don't go in with that sort of um, energy that some founders have. And I just never really do that. I don't really get overly excited about anything. I don't, at the same time, I don't get really negative about stuff. I'm just kind of even keeled through. Um, and that's taken some time to work on that, so. Right, but I, I found the takeaway really interesting and in how the way you dealt with it was just being true to yourself. And um, yeah, I guess that that's very cool. That's a very cool um, message to have. Yeah, there's no point of apologizing for who you are. Like, sometimes you just tell people, listen, like, I'm not really going to come out here and bang the table about this, but understand this. This is who I am. Resigned from a job doing this. And if I'm here doing this, it's because I believe in it. So <laughs> if you kind of open a line like that, people kind of be like, all right, this guy's, you know, <laughs> serious. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I've, I'm sure that does um, get attention. So how did you start conversations with VCs? How did you end up trying to navigate that? Was it eventually... You, was it that line that opened up doors no well no like most like i'll be honest vcs like the thing about vcs is you only read about the ones that are successful you rarely see the ones that are unsuccessful like i think god damn there must have been like two must have pitched like 200 people maybe of that 40 50 vcs a lot of them pass on stuff um we had a lot of angel investors one thing like i kind of have like a little spreadsheet about like who I pitched to and the data around it. I had a lot of success raising money from angels. And there was like a profile that worked really well. If they come from finance and I speak to them in person, there's a, a really good chance they'll invest, assuming they have the money. Okay. And that's partly because our product is really technical. It's not really easy for people to understand what it is in a weird way. They're like, you know, like I'm sure if you ask my mom what I do. Just, she won't tell me. My brother might not even. My brother will now a little bit now that he's getting into like investing in marijuana stocks. He'll kind of get what we do. Um, but if you worked in finance and they understood what I was saying and the vocabulary that I was in, they would invest. But if I spoke to VCs, that was a much tougher sell because a lot of VCs, um, maybe two, more than two, like three, four years ago, were investing in fintech predominantly were consumer related fintechs. So like, think of it like challenger banks. Like, I'm not sure what the situations like in Canada, but like a lot of fintechs that became really popular, like things that consumers used, like, like you said, well, simple in Canada is well known or like some type of online bank that competed against like the Canadian banks would have been popular. But the companies that provided the infrastructure for them wasn't as popular here at the time because the VCs themselves didn't understand behind like the second derivative of infrastructure or tech that was being built. And that made it really hard for them to scope out like the opportunity size and um, how, like where that market can go. And so I had a really low hit ratio with, with VCs. But what I realized is that instead of like spraying and praying, find the VCs that have experience in your sector who can appreciate where you're coming from and then speak to those ones. Obviously that sounds like a no brainer, but it's very rare that a VC has experience investing in something that, is new, right? By definition, what we're doing is new. So there's very few um, examples for them to follow. You kind of need them, you need them to give them a proxy to look at. Uh, and we got quite lucky that in Germany, maybe two years before we raised, uh, a, what they call banking as a service company raised a ton of capital. 
And then I kind of had to extrapolate what they were doing and say, well, if they're banking as a service, we're like wealth as a service. Uh, and that started to resonate more with VCs and, and they started coming on board. Strangely enough, the VC that led around um, one of the, the, or the, I guess the person behind it first invested as an angel. Uh, and when I told them I was doing our series A, they just did the whole thing because they were happy with how we were doing processes. And we had interest from other VCs, but you know, I like the fact that they supported me early and I let them take the whole thing because I, I like people who, you know, who back me and, and they, they showed me more confidence earlier than other VCs. And so I have a great relationship with them. Um, so it, even though it's a VC that invested, it was kind of built on a personal relationship at first. Uh, they put in a hundred grand and they backed it up with six million. So. <laughs> Six million, that is a sizable amount to, yeah. to put behind them. Yeah, to put, to, to put behind uh, their, their thoughts. So yeah, and I'm awesome. clear, like, I have like a pretty much, like my co-founder Yannick said, like, add them to the list because I keep a long list of VCs that have said no to me. Like, and for sure, like, I have nothing, one of the motivations for me is to do extremely well and, and definitely make a lot of people have some serious regrets about passing. You know, you remember those conversations <laughs> for a long, long time. That's fair. That's fair. So how do you how do you deal with the challenges and all the so f- say there are 200 people you talk to all the 199 or probably less than that but several knows that you've had. How do you deal with that? Well, you don't really think twice about it. I think like like anyone that plays sports or anything like you can't you learn from it but you can't let it get to you. Like like if if you're if you're kind of sensitive on that it's nothing personal like they're doing their job and and you have to take like how you learn from it, how you adjust and you go from it. Like, like you do take it personal, but not like in a way where you kind of go home and let it screw up your day. Like some days you pitch like two, three times and you just got to shake off one and go to the next one. Um, you take the feedback they have, but you can't let it get you like upset. you like, if you're someone that takes rejection or get frustrated, this is a, a really painful journey. Like it is a lot of pain for four months of pitching, saying it, and then, you know, and then take, sometimes the feedback is accurate and, and don't blame them, right? Other times it's not, and you just kind of have to just, or it's not, it's not my day and just move on. But you kind of take that rejection as fuel, right? Like I, one of the VCs I still talk to, even though he didn't, like he wanted to invest, but he got boxed out by our current investors was, every time you get, every time you hear a no, statistically you're closer to hearing a yes. So, so you just got to take it like that and just go with it so that, that is true that is true I've never heard anyone put it that way but that's a really good way to put it so yeah. have you learned um has there been a, a lesson that's really stuck out to you from these rejections outside of um maybe that statistical one you just mentioned um how do they fuel you? You mentioned that they fuel you. How do they fuel you? Oh, yeah. Like, you know, you want to win. And like, more importantly, I want the people that invested in us to do really well and beat the other VCs and and, and have and bring down a world of pain on the other VCs that didn't invest in, in us. You know, <laughs> that's that's that that's enough fuel for me. Right. Like <laughs> it is what it is, you know, so. Uh, I, I, I don't need much motivation. Like, obviously, I have a lot of my own capital, my own you know, sweat equity into this company. I have plenty of motivation to do well. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't really, do I understand your question, right? Yeah, yeah. 
Um, if you could think back through the history of uh, Wealth Kernel, is there an interesting story that really sticks out to you? Maybe something that seemed like a catastrophe in the moment, but now you look back on it and kind of kind of laugh a little. Catastrophe in the moment, I look back. Um, yeah, we've lost some, like, like some. Okay, so as a startup, you always want to like grow your business. You're looking for revenues, right? Revenues not only you know give you money to run your business, but more importantly, like it's metrics that you can raise with. And having some big companies as customers are, are, are a, you know, it's a huge uh, validation of your business, right? Uh, and there's been a few times where we've, we've been in not just late stage discussions, but they've actually started paying us funds to use our infrastructure. These are large banks, I'd say in the top five in the UK. Um, you know, and you spend months at it for, for it to fall apart. Uh, and and you can't help but you feel frustrated. You, you kind of lick your wounds about it. And but in hindsight, like as painful as those losses are, sometimes you, you learn a lot about the market you go after. Um, in terms how to sell to these companies, what to look for in, in sales, um, and who your customers are, and and that has sort of shaped our business in a weird way. Like we are unapologetically focused on startups and smaller businesses. And and using APIs to uh, to facilitate that, and you know we often ask why don't you guys try to sell to larger companies? Well, of course I want to sell to larger companies. Like nobody's saying no to that, but being realistic about what comes with selling to large companies. Now that I've gone through that process maybe three or four times of not closing with different large institutions, um, it's easier to say no to it, or it's easier to kind of you know not get distracted because. Whenever a large company says, hey, we want to do this, the tendency is to drop what you're doing and then be like, you know, if they say jump, you say how high, right? And, and that's, it becomes easier to push back on those things after you've gone through it. But obviously, when you lose those deals, it's, it's not a great feeling for, I'm going to say weeks, if not months. Um, you just pick up and, and you just move forward. So uh, what's the reason that a lot of these conversations didn't end up closing? Um, yeah, so those I've, I've had first, some of it's just like company politics, you know, one part of the bank likes you because you're more innovative and they have a tech lens. The other side comes from a compliance and operational and they have a preferred vendor that they've worked with that they know and there's deep relationships. Um, the expression that sometimes we, we use as a shorthand for this is like the buy IBM syndrome. Like those, if you're like back in the day when IBM was like the brand to buy for computers, I guess. If you're buying tech, if you bought it from IBM, no one can really doubt you because they were the market leader and it gave you sort of uh, protection. But if you went for like an unknown company, let's say at the time, Apple, right? like that, that iconic commercial when they were used to, you know, like back in the day it was Apple versus IBM, right? Uh, if, if it went bad at Apple or you chose some new tech, it would reflect poorly on you and it's a risky decision, right? So that, those are, that's, that's a really important thing when you're looking at who your customers are, why they choose it. Sometimes it's just our size. Like if we're like 10 people and they have more people, like literally they have more, uh, I think here, like they would have more people in the meeting than we have in our whole company, <laughs> right? Like easily, easily. Like some of these companies have tens, thousands of people. And you say, okay, we'll, we'll sell you tech. For them, I can see like we might not be around or we don't have cope. That's one. 
that's two actually three um we don't have a lot of uh experience shipping to large companies they'd be our first company and no one wants to be the first so there's a few reasons like that and for us genuinely like i think it's not like the large companies you can get it done once in a while but it uses a lot of resources on your side because your product becomes what they want as well right they can dictate your product um, development pretty aggressively because they're going to be your main you know 99 percent of your revenue for the next two years so and that's not a great way to do it so we push back for a few reasons like that and, and they push back on us sorry they push back on us for those reasons Great. So have you just stopped really trying to pursue those leads and focus more on small business? And how have you been focused on trying to help small business? I like to say that we opportunistically go after larger business, but, but what we're not is like naive or as gullible maybe as we were a few years ago. So it's just taking a very measured approach. And oddly enough, the more measured you are with them, the more they seem to want to do business things. So we've had success recently signing a mid. It's kind of just like, yeah, great, we'll do it. But like not being cocky or arrogant about it, but not being overly like desperate as well. And it's been working well. So like we're looking at our second large deal now. Like we have, we've won a medium-sized deal. Um, you know, in, in the UK, they're, I wouldn't say well-known by the public, but in the community of wealth and savings companies, are, they're well-known. Um, and when that, They've signed contracts, you know, when we go live with them, that'll be our first medium-sized business. Um, for large businesses, it's just being disciplined. Take the meetings, obviously be appreciative, but then when they start fetching you their ideas and 10 people with their ideas, what you need to do, you can kind of just be like, right, I don't really think this is for us. Or, and when you kind of have that type of discipline, they, you know, they, they either say, great, we got it, or it's not for us and it saves a decision that would have happened maybe in three, four months. Uh, and the expression I use internally is that's like bad news early is good news. You know, just keep it moving. Um, so that's kind of the approach we have not just be very straight with them. And any type of weird like, oh, you know, we need you to do this. Can you do a free demo or uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, test or can we run your stuff? Like, no, just, just say no. Um, and it's up to them. Like they're in some ways more, uh, they sometimes need you more than that you need them because they're the incumbents and they need to show how they're innovating and they need to keep up with the startups who are our clients. So, and you can't undersell yourself. And that's something that we've definitely learned over the last sort of year is value what we do, value what we bring to the table. They got money and that's all they got. And we have everything else, so. Mm. Now, switching gears a little bit, um, what does a day in the life look like for you as the CEO of Wealthfernal, an up-and-coming fintech startup? Is this like COVID life or like pre-COVID life? Is it, has there been a big, I mean, let's, let's do COVID because that's where we are. Yeah, COVID life, like, yeah, it's a bit different now. Like, without going, we've had some, so I'm a father too. I have a, a toddler and a, and a newborn. Um, and so post-COVID, we've had to make some changes. Um, so I wake up, I pretty much handle my son in the morning, um, I'll take him out, wake him up, do all that stuff. He can't go to nursery because of COVID right now. So he's at home. <laughs> so I pretty much stop working again at 10.30 a.m., kind of be with him till like 1 o'clock until he goes down and pretty much work till like, till like 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock when he wakes up. <laughs> 
and then kind of balance him in meetings. Um, and then I stopped working again at like five and just do stuff with him. And then I work in the evenings. It's pretty much that Monday to Sunday now. <laughs> like it's, it's, it is what it is. Um, and some of it just has to do with a per, like personal situations where we've had some bad luck health wise in, in the family. So we've had to make adjustments. Um, that's, that's what the life is. And, and we're kind of, kind of happy about it in a weird way, because although it's a pretty situation, unlike some other people we know, uh, you know, we're, you know, financially pretty comfortable work-wise we're comfortable housing situations fine but hell this would have been a lot easier if we were in Toronto with our family because here we're kind of we don't have that much family here so we've had to make changes and I'm lucky that I have a company that kind of people adjust and work around my schedule uh, a little bit so that, that's the schedule before COVID um, I, I'm not one to work from home so I, I, I normally work from the office uh, kind of your usual routine um, and, and evenings a lot after uh, my son goes to sleep so yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if we touched on this earlier, but I'm very curious as to why you ended up staying in the UK. If, as you said, it would have been easier family-wise, possibly if you if you come to Toronto. Well, to I feel like I didn't think about COVID. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, it would have been easier. It's just um, there's a few reasons. Like, like our company is is a product, it's an opportunity of not just tech, but also regulatory changes. Um, and my and my network here got it's weird. Even though I'm from Toronto and uh, all my close friends are in Toronto uh, I studied in Montreal my university networks there and, and I don't speak a word of French so um, they really want to stay there and I came here I did my master's and then I got a job at Barclays and you don't say no to Barclays so it's here and I thought okay I'll come back um, and then I you know kind of one thing led to another career-wise things started going really well uh, Barclays was really good to me. Like I start, I was just starting the graduate program here, nothing fancy. Um, and then five years kind of pass, and then this opportunity comes up, so I'm not really leaving. Um, if it wasn't for Walton, I'd probably be back on a one-way flight right now. Um, but, but, you know, hopefully the world gets smaller. Well, maybe not post-COVID, but, but yeah, it is what it is. So you're here. Yeah. So, I don't want to make the sound the UK sound like a bad place. We have great friends and there's things to do here. Like, like I live in Central London. It's, it's fantastic. It's, it's a great quality of life. But, but you can't really replace family. And, and Canada has some really good things about it. Like, like you, now that you've been here for so long, this space, sports, <laughs> things that are a little bit hard to come by. Uh, but London being the fintech capital, like, like, like. I kind of live between the city of London and Canary Wharf, like in that area. Canary Wharf I has more banks in half that district than all of Canada does. <laughs> like just put that to scale, like just the size of the difference for finance is pretty huge. Um, like no other place would they give someone as young as me. Like when I talk to my friends in, in, in Toronto, like I think, you know, you started by saying, okay, I managed X million of assets. If I was in Toronto, I wouldn't see that much assets until I was in my forties. Like it's just, it's just a different thing here. Um, so it's partly because of opportunity. Now because of Brexit, um, we're opening an office in Spain. And you know, I've, I told my wife, like, maybe that's our next move, move out to Madrid, um, because that, that's where we're, like, we have four staff out there and, and that could be where we're going to next. And so we'll see. And um, kind of switching gears again, um, if you could go back in time and give 
16 year old you any advice after you know doing all that you have and and experiencing everything you have you've had you have if you could give 16 year old you any advice what would the advice be Sixteen year old me probably said to just probably just enjoy myself more as a teenager I think I know it sounds kind of crazy but yeah like I'd probably say that's probably the most thing is to be less worried about like you know getting out of situations just enjoy yourself a little bit more I think <laughs> I think you kind of look back at stuff in those years as teenagers you're, you know you're trying to better yourself and work hard in school-wise part-time jobs and all but probably the only thing I'd probably say is just you know, all that stuff can probably wait till later. I probably just would have told myself to chill out a little bit more and just just do more dumb things. Uh, no, not less less of certain dumb things, okay? I'm not going to go into detail, but less of certain dumb things and other things that I would normally, at that time, would have probably dismissed as just unimportant, probably done more of that. Uh, just put more focus on family around that time. Um, uh, yeah, that's probably it. Like I, yeah, I probably didn't have the average like teenage, sixteen-year-old thing. I didn't just kind of mess around. I think you're you're, you're, part, you're technically part of Tamil culture as well, or no? Yeah. So you guys had that whole piece about like di- like Tamil dishwashers and stuff. Like that would have been me. Like I, I was working part time at like in downtown Toronto after school and stuff. Probably could have told myself to be like, you know what? If I could do like one shift or two shift, if <laughs> I didn't need a third one and just probably like chilled out more, <laughs> like I probably would have gone back and just spent more time with friends and family in hindsight. But it is what it is. How did your uh, upbringing? So you mentioned you were an immigrant to Canada um, and then you were working very hard even as a teen. How did that uh, background influence your career? and what you've done so far? It's probably one of the biggest reasons we got the money because the guy that put the money in, um, I'm not going to mention it, like, it don't matter, but the, the people behind this company, ETF, that's capital, like public knowledge, it's, it's, you can probably find this on, online and stuff. Uh, he's an Australian entrepreneur and you know he sold his business for a billion, billion two. Uh, and one of the things that is remarkable about our business is how lean we were like that sort of work ethic. And he's just like, he had, he had some Australian phrase that I'm not going to try to repeat, but that sort of sort of frugalness, how to work hard. It's kind of been, if you look at our financial statements and when they now they're like, it's incredible, like how much we've done in such little amount of capital. And that's kind of been, if you plot that back to like working and all that, how we like saving money as a culture and telling people, that's probably one of the biggest reasons they were able to like, Geez, if you're able to do this, this much capital, like I wonder what you're going to do with X amount of capital. Um, so probably indirectly helped you. The fact that we can weather so many storms as a startup and being a fintech, it's all about being well capitalized because no one wants to do business with you if you're going to go down. It's not like we're a photo sharing app or some type of consumer tech that no one looks at it. Our customers are other businesses, by, not just other businesses, other financial businesses. So the people who are looking at it are usually very good at numbers as well. And if they get any hint that you're not stable or you're not, you know, you're running a leaky ship, they're not going to want to do business with you. And that sort of control of expenses and managing money, that sort of hardworking culture you put in, people kind of appreciate that, that sort of blue collar work ethic that we have here at Wealth Kernel. 
Uh, and that's one of the reasons they took a big chance on us. We didn't just go like, they knew we weren't just gonna take 6 million and go buy fucking ping pong tables and, 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 and have like, you know, become hipsters. Like they knew that's not what we were gonna be. And, and he knew that I'm not like that either. <laughs> like they're just, he knew that he didn't have to like put that into contracts and he, there was no concern. I think other VCs would sort of stagger their capital, but with us, and I was able to demonstrate that. So I, I would say it's paid huge dividends. Right. So it's really nice when you, it, like you, the story kind of has come full circle a little bit with the hard work and the ethic, the work ethic, and now helping you with Wealth Kernel. Yeah. 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 So before we end off, um, if you could leave the audience with one note or a piece of advice or, or call to action, whatever it may be, what would that thing be? In terms of like, sp like speaking to your entrepreneurs or like listening to this or... Who am I speaking to? Uh, so Tamil individuals who are interested in innovation, potential entrepreneurs, current entrepreneurs. Oh, yeah. Um, I would say too many people. It's like, I know there's a lot of people who want to become entrepreneurs and they have side hustles and stuff. And, that, and I encourage that. I think that's really good. But if you're going to, if you believe in something, you're going to go all in. My view on it is that you probably have like maybe one or two shots in life. You can do that where you can really just like focus on it. And if you believe in it, do it 100%. Don't just do it on this. I'm trying to just like, I'm just not for the people who have like side hustle Instagram businesses. I'm talking about people who like, I'm going to quit my job and do this. If you're going to do that, quit your job and do that and just go all in for X amount of time and give it all you have. That is, it's better to do that than try to just work at your sort of dissatisfied job and on the part-time do this. Years will go by and you won't do anything. If you believe in it, just go all in in it. And just have like a time and a number or put aside some money that you know you can walk away with and pay your rent or whatever and just give it all you got and if it fails in a few years you'll, you'll go back to work for some company you'll make your savings up and you'll have another shot and if you can do that just go for it just think plan ahead of, ahead of time like you know sort your financial personal situation out your family speak to your partner and be like this is what's going to happen <laughs> we're not going to be buying a house in the next five years this is what it's going to be get them to get on board explain the situation to your parents and siblings, get them all kind of thing, and then just get to work and, and go jump and just jump in. But if you hit that point where you're running out of money or time, then call it quits. But you've given yourself that opportunity. Don't try to juggle multiple things because people, very few people are, are able to be the best at something while they're not giving 100% at It's hard enough to build a business without you know, juggling other things. Thank you so much for sharing your experience, your knowledge, and your advice today. This has been a very insightful discussion. I've learned a lot, so I really hope that our audience has as well. Thank you again for your time today. Sure, my pleasure. Awesome. Um, and for our audience, thank you for tuning in. Um, as promised earlier, free stuff is mentioned. So if you like free stuff, you're gonna wanna stick around for the last minute or so. Um, I've just shared a link in the chat to a feedback form. So we're actually going to randomly select one of the responders and you'll get free swag. So please do fill out that form now. It'll only take you two minutes just to kind of give us some feedback on the event. Um, I'll also put it up on the screen so you can uh, see that link. Once again, I'd like to thank all of the amazing people who made this event possible. possible. From uh, Shiv and Ara at Tamil Culture to Karen uh, for being our awesome featured speaker today.
Be sure to visit TamilCulture.com to network and collaborate with Tamil innovators worldwide. And thank you again, Kevin, for being involved. Uh, be sure to check out Wealth Kernel at WealthKernel.com. And thank you. And um, to our audience, thank you for joining us. See you next time. Take care.